Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The first author reading of the 8th Annual Lit Fest and Book Fair featured William Haywood Henderson, Robin Black, and Andre Debuse III. In the Lighthouse Grotto on June 10, 2013, these three authors dazzled the standing room only crowd. Welcome to the Super Monday Night Reading at LitFest, 8th eighth, eighth Annual, 8.0. Thanks for coming. Yeah. How's your LitFest going so far? Doing okay? Now, to introduce our readers tonight, um, I think I have the order. Did I tell you guys what the order is? Where, where are they? Are they here? They're, okay. Oh, awesome. You're back there. Excellent. Thank you. You're so patient. I appreciate it. Okay, so um, I'm going to read their bios, and then they'll come up one at a time. I'm not going to read a bio, reader, read a bio, reader. I'm just going to, I'm going to get off the stage. I'm just going to take care of this. So first up, just because um, these are the, I think the order is going to be, um, what did we decide? We said Andre, Andre Robin, Robin. Guillermo. Is that right? I thought we were going to do a Bill Sandwich. <laughs> yes, that's what we we're going to do. That's right. I'm sorry. We decided. <laughs> It's a metaphor. Come on. We're writers. Robin's, Robin's taking us home. She's clean, she's clean up. Okay, so it's um, Andre, Bill, Robin. Okay, so um, I guess I, I can read them in that order, can I? I'll keep these short. But this is so amazing. They're here. They're right there. And listen to what they've done. Andre Debuse III is the author of five books, The Cage Keeper and Other Stories, Blues Man, and the New York Times bestsellers, House of Sand and Fog, perhaps you've heard of it, The Garden of Last Days, and his memoir, Townie, which was a number four New York Times bestseller and a New York Times editor's choice. It was named on many top nonfiction books of 2011 lists, including the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, The Library Journal, Kirkus Reviews, and Esquire. His work has been included in the Best American Essays of 1994, the Best Spiritual Writing, and his novel of House of Sand and Fog was a finalist for the National Book Award, a number one New York Times bestseller, and was made into an Academy Award-nominated film starring Ben Kingsley and Jennifer Connelly. Mr. Debuse has been awarded a Guggenheim, a National Magazine Award for Fiction, the Pushcart, and he's a 2012 recipient of an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. His books are published in over 25 languages, including Latin. <laughs> and he teaches full-time at the University of... Ma- I, I'm joking, that's not true. University of Massachusetts Lowell. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife. This is a great name, Fontaine. Yes. A modern dancer and their three children. His new book, Dirty Love, is forthcoming in the fall of 2013. Available for pre-order, I wouldn't be surprised, maybe. Next is William Haywood Henderson, or as we call him, Bill, was born in Syracuse, New York, but quickly migrated west. He grew up mostly in Colorado. He's one of my favorite people, by the way. That's not in the bio. He's, yeah, he's one of Mike Henry's favorite people. It says it right there. <laughs> Headed Father West for college, earned a BA in English from the University of California at Berkeley. Were you that naked guy who walked around campus for four years? I thought so. That's right. All classes naked. He held a variety of jobs, including chef, copywriter, Chippendales dancer. Oh, no, wait, that's, 
Oh, that's a typo. Technical writer, landscape gardener, and caretaker on a ranch in Wyoming before heading back to East to take a degree in creative writing at Brown University. He attended Stanford University as a Wallace Stegner Fellow in Creative Writing, and he used the time to finish his first novel, called Native, and start his second novel, The Rest of the Earth. He has taught creative writing at Brown, Harvard, University of Colorado at Denver, and, of course, the highest place, Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Yeah. He returned to Denver in 1999. Um, since 2002, he has taught novel writing at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. His third novel, Augusta Locke, was released by Viking in April 2006, and he's going to be reading from his new book tonight. What's it called? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. His new novel called I Don't Know. Wonderful. Last but certainly not least, Robin Black's short story collection, If I Loved You, I Would Tell You This. It's a great title was published by Random House in 2010 to international acclaim by publications such as O Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, the Irish Times, and more. The stories written over a period of eight years focus on families at points of crisis and of growth. When are families not at points of crisis and of growth? I love that. Robin's stories and essays have appeared in numerous publications, including the Southern Review, New York Times Magazine, One Story, these guys are such slackers, Georgia Review, Colorado Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Freight Stories, Indiana Review, and The Best Creative Nonfiction. She is the recipient of grants from the Leeway Foundation, the McDowell Colony, the Siren Land Conference, and is also the winner of the 2005 Pirates Alley Faulkner Wisdom Writing Competition in the short story category. She has been distinguished visiting writer at Bryn Mawr, Mawr, Bryn Mawr, I've had two beers, Mar? is it Mar? Mar, Mar, Bryn Mawr College, and we'll be teaching at Brooklyn College MFA program, I'm sorry, in the fall of 2013. Her first novel is forthcoming from Random House in spring of 2014. I knew the title, but I guess today the title got changed. Dang, these people. We could start a, a, a letter writing campaign. Really? No way. I don't know. They're both reading from their works in progress. I probably don't know. So please, please welcome Andre Debus the third. How are you? I didn't know, yeah, I'm fucking wicked awesome, too. You know, it's funny, I, I, I'm not really a hypochondriac until I am. I went for a run today, and I, I was feeling fine until he told me I ran in 100 degrees. Then all of a sudden I feel woozy, you know, what? I feel a little low. All right, uh, I'm just going to read for 7.5 minutes from a 40-minute essay. So um, I was asked by a quarterly to write an essay on... You know, examining the differences between writing fiction, which is mainly what I do, and, and creative nonfiction slash memoir, and I had no time to do it, and I'm so glad I stole the time because I learned a lot about all that. And I'm just going to read. It's, it's long and complicated. I'm just going to read a little bit. I'm going to hop around. It's called Writing and Publishing a Memoir, What in the Hell Have I Done? <laughs> In my hometown of Haverhill, Massachusetts, the mill town where I grew up in the setting for townie, I'm told it's referred to as the book. Hey, have you read the book? You shitting me? I'm in the fucking book. (laughs) 
Just weeks after it was published, I was to give a reading at the Haverhill Public Library. Over 500 people showed up. The librarian introduced me, and there was enthusiastic applause, a few raucous whoops and shouts from the rear of the room. I looked out over the crowd and took them in. Many were my age in their late 40s or early 50s. Behind aging skin and hair and a few extra pounds, I recognized a face here, the eyes of another there, people I hadn't seen in over 30 years when we'd all attended the same high school with its undercover narcs and drug dealing, its high-achieving jock kids from across the river, the leather-wearing ponytail losers like me on the mill side, the kids or grandkids of immigrants from Ireland and Italy, Greece and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And there were older men and women there, too, the parents of those of us who grew up in the shadow of the Vietnam War and Watergate and Nixon flying away from the presidency in his helicopter, an echo image of what so many of our own fathers had done, though they'd driven away in Chevys or hopped a bus or just hit the road with a thumb out. I thanked everyone for coming, then I read a few brief passages and took some questions. Mostly, though, the audience offered comments, and mostly these were words of thanks for telling our story. Our story. I liked hearing this and was grateful for their gratitude, but I was also confused by it. I mean, I knew what they meant, that I'd written about that in-between generation we were members of, 10 years younger than the Vietnam baby boomers, but 10 years older than Generation X. We were kids who grew up listening to early Aerosmith on 8-tracks in Z-28s, drinking Heffenreffer Tall Boys and smoking Angel Dust. We grew our hair to our waist and carried pints of Southern Comfort in our dingo boots like Janis Joplin. But the party had moved on years ago, and so we were left wearing costumes, having sex too young, drinking too much, fighting in bar rooms and in the street, our broke single mothers too overwhelmed to do much about it. I knew what they were thanking me for, but still, wasn't Townie essentially my story? Years ago, I read an interview with the writer Janet Burroway in which she says that when readers go to the novel, what we're really saying to it is this, give me me. Don't you love that? Most of us know this to be true. If the writer goes deeply enough into her characters and their stories, then they'll go deeply enough into us, too, their own natures resonating with ours, like an easterly breeze moving wind chimes on a porch we'd never even known about. But with creative nonfiction memoir, the breeze seems to be even more direct, the wind chimes closer to the front door of the house in which we live. A man standing near a window raised his hand. He looked over six feet tall and well over 200 pounds, and he wore a black beret and a black sweater and black pants. He was my age or younger, but he was leaning on a cane. His goatee was wispy and just beginning to gray. I called on him. You know your friend Clary, your best friend when you was kids? His voice was reedy and restrained, like he was trying to hold back an emotion that wasn't all good. Yeah, what about Cleary? Yeah, he was my brother. Cleary, always clowning and stealing and drinking and getting high, the son of a hopelessly alcoholic mother and distant father, my best friend when I was 13, 14, and 15, stabbed to death at age 25 by the common-law wife he used to beat. Mark, is that you? He nodded. 
and I left the podium and walked down the side aisle to clear his younger brother I hadn't seen in years. I hugged him, and he hugged me back, and then the crowd began to clap, and I walked back to the microphone and told him just who he was. Later, at the book signing table, he asked me to inscribe a copy to their father. Mark told me how happy his old man was to hear that his oldest son, dead far too soon, had made it into the pages of a real book, that his son would live on now, that he wouldn't be forgotten. On the title page of the book, I wrote how much I loved and missed his son, and I wrote his son's real name and wished the father well and signed my own. But a week or two later, I received an email from Mark's girlfriend telling me Mark's father had read the book and that he was very, very upset. And why wouldn't he be? How could I not have thought of this earlier? I described his son as having been a wife-beater in his last days. I described how deeply alcoholic his mother had been, this woman who died of her disease not long after her oldest child had been stabbed to death. I wrote how absent he, the father, had seemed to me during those years. My God, what had I done? I'd written as truly of that time as I could. That's what I'd done. But my intention was never to hurt anyone, ever. These things rarely happen when what you write and publish is fiction. Just one more little page. I list about 50 fucking problems here, by the way. (laughs) I still recommend it to all my memoir participants. (laughs) I am glad I wrote it, but... And then there are my quote-unquote truths versus other people's truths. Some of my childhood friends look back on that time and place much differently. One is Jimmy Quinn, a quote-unquote character in the book. His real name is also Irish with a two-syllable first name and a one-syllable last name. By the time he was 16, he had a reputation as being a very tough and dangerous kid, a guy who'd easily beaten up grown men. He was over six feet tall and just under 200 pounds, and and he was handsome even with a chipped front tooth. For many years in my youth, he was the only kind of guy I wanted to be, one who could defend himself and anyone he was close to. A few weeks after the book came out, my publisher forwarded to me an email from him, and we began to correspond. I hadn't seen or spoken to him in years. He wrote to me that he was reading the book and that he especially liked the parts about him. Every few days, I get a new email from him telling me where he was in the story and what he thought of it. (laughs) He told me about his life now, about his wife of many years and their their three nearly grown children. I enjoyed these emails and was struck by how reflective he'd gotten, how he was no longer that kid I remembered, though I heard that he still occasionally got into fights downtown and consistently came out ahead the way he always had. In one of his last emails to me, He told me that when he looked back on all those house parties and bar fights and street fights, even the one at the high school when he got stabbed and almost died, that he couldn't stop laughing at all the fun we'd had. (laughs) Why was your book so dark? What, What could I say to this? He was the oldest of nine kids. They all lived with their mother and father in a big house on Main Street. He was an athlete who played football and baseball. Other boys respected him, many feared him, and most girls were drawn to him. We both lived in the same depressed town, but for him it was a playground. For me, it was just one more manifestation of the home I lived in, 
unsafe, unclean, wild, gray, and unhappy. I wrote all this back to him, and there was the strange sense that I was writing not to the man still living in Haverhill, Massachusetts, just nine miles from where I was raising my own family, but that I was writing to Jimmy Quinn, the young, handsome brawler in my book, Jimmy Quinn, the character. He wrote back, I thought you were going to say that. Makes sense. (laughs) The following Christmas, a woman from the Haverhill Chamber of Commerce asked me if I'd be willing to sign some books at an outdoor booth at their Santa stroll through downtown. (laughs) They actually have a mural of me on a wall now. Um, I told her I would, then promptly forgot about it. The night I was supposed to be there, my friend walked by and saw my booth unmanned and heard I wasn't coming. No problem, he said. I'm Jimmy Quinn. I'll sign him. (laughs) I heard he signed quite a few like this. Merry Christmas. Best wishes. Jimmy Quinn. Thank you. It's wicked awesome. <laughs> I'm afraid my piece isn't funny at all, but feel free to laugh. Um, this is a new novel that um, until about a week ago was set in Wyoming, but now it's set in Montana. Please, please don't ask why. Um, the novel's called The Rift Valley. It actually does have a title. Um, and this is the first couple pages of a new version of it, which will be done in a couple decades. <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a sad story. I came to Montana from a lush life, a coastal climate, from the mitigated seasons of the northern California seashore, from Douglas firs and maidenhair ferns and the forest canopy like dense green lace. Here in southern Montana at 9,000 feet, the vegetation has always struck me as more silver than green, as if even at starkest noon, starlight paints the valley. The sagebrush, scrub willow, aspen, spruce are all vaguely lustrous, hovering just behind their own surfaces. Maybe or most of the year it's cold, the green veiled in white. Winter starts early and stays late. If time moved fast enough, this valley would appear eternally snowbound, the summer flashing too quickly to leave an impression on the eye. But my memory of summer resonates deep into the bitter months. These 50 acres have been my home for six years. I have controlled whatever is possible to control. I installed a wind turbine and solar panels, built three greenhouses, I know other girls who would be scared of this life, but I'm comfortable enough. The first thing I did when I bought this property was to replace the windows in the old cabin. The double glazing reduces the sound of the wind, and drafts don't follow me from corner to corner. I can sit at the window, look out at the glare of the snow, and not feel the cold radiating from the glass. The view is just the view, and the tenuousness of the cabin seems less obvious. Believe me, though, Tenuousness is the overwhelming attribute of life at 9,000 feet 
and insulated glazing is only a partial solution. Sometimes it feels as though the snow will keep building up until the roof can't sustain the weight and the whole structure will crash. Tonight, that fear has awakened me again, or that's what I think for the first few seconds. I listen to the darkness, imagine that at any moment the cabin will collapse, leaving me trapped in the destruction, the snow sifting down, the wind cutting through. But that's not what has opened my eyes. It's the thought of Dan. He's due to arrive tomorrow, or it's already tomorrow, so he's arriving sometime today, coming around through Red Lodge. It's been two years, I think, or nearly three. I've heard from him over those years, regular letters and calls, as he makes his route across the West. His route would have been my route also if I'd kept working Hard Rock Cruise. I knew I, I went where he went. He always requested me, always hired me. The first time I saw Dan was on the campus in Missoula. I remember the leaves about to fall, the river at its base flow, the air absolutely dry, cold weighted behind the blue. And there he was. He caught my elbow, said nothing, just pressed a coin into my palm. I hadn't even realized I'd lost that coin. The sun was on him. His skin was bumpy with youth and insect bites. His shirt was open a button too far, as if he'd failed to complete something that morning. The bones of his chest held his thin, tan skin, the start of his pelt, a white scar that angled out of sight. He continued on his way, and I continued on mine. That's how life works. The next summer, we went out into the world. He'd hired me for my first hard rock crew, first of many. We would search for minerals, mostly gold, take soil samples along the creek banks, plot our points, try to locate the vein of any wealth we'd uncovered. He said that the first time he saw me, my shadow progressed along the sidewalk and opened the coin to the sun, and there it was, a spinning nickel like a bright translucent globe, already starting to wobble, ready to fall. He pinched it up, felt my body's heat on it. What he didn't tell me, or couldn't tell me, was who I was that day. I was too young for college, already in my second year of undergrad, already thinking of continuing on to a master's in geology. I was tall. I was as blonde then as now. He won't admit it, but he would have thought I was too young for everything, too smooth, no creases, no scars. That's how I must have appeared, untouched. I won't sleep again tonight. I stand at the window, the floor warm beneath my feet. It is early summer, of course, many months yet until winter. My fear of the cabin's collapse, though, isn't connected to any particular season. Maybe it's the repeated settling of the logs, the indistinct pops, the thumps on the roof that keep me on edge, always half alert. Maybe it's my habit of thinking the worst. But it's not as if the world is handing out favors. I've never understood my role in any of it, good or bad. Never knew what I was bringing down. I dress, pull on my boots and jacket, step outside. The moon has disappeared and the stars with it. It has begun to rain. The scent is as pure as any earthly scent can be. No complication, no trick. The rain nourishes the living, nourishes even the bacteria, mold, and fungi that feed on the dead. Here I could hold still, listen for days, weeks, and never hear a voice or engine, a pure emptiness without human sound. This valley sits right up against the Absorca range. The peaks often hold snow straight through summer. The range is a daunting wall, though I know where the trails find their way in. 
I know the entire shape and history of the Absorcas, have taken samples, run tests, studied the literature, centered my thesis on these specific peaks. The range was built by volcanoes over millions of years, ashy debris piling up again and again, cycles of erosion, rivers carrying the debris away. The peaks are banded with layers of volcanic breccias, and the bands count out the eons for me. It's a language I understand. For the moment, the contours of the range are locked onto maps, unchanging in the blink of a lifetime. But I know that I'm standing on a fluid history. I head down the path toward my three greenhouses, arrive at the farthest, the blocky shape I could find even through blindness. I tug at the door to break the seal and pass quickly into the warmth. When I left the cruise and returned here per, per, permanently, I got, into, got it into my head to replicate the sense and feel of my grandmother Grand Ella's acres back on the Point Reyes Peninsula north of San Francisco. That corner of California was my birthplace, my home. This greenhouse wasn't a simple project. The, pro- the expense, the purchase and shipping of the specimens, the tracking of the Pacific Coast weather, the books I studied, the calls I made. More than once, I nearly abandoned the project. My other two greenhouses provide sustenance. This greenhouse holds only memory, and for that I could just close my eyes and sleep, but I can't control my dreams. The interior of this greenhouse is one large planting bed, deep enough to accommodate serious roots. I've gathered bay laurel, buckeye, live oak, all gaining height, shading the understory of bush lupine, coffee berry, deer fern, huckleberry, orchids and irises, hawkweed, milkmaids, fairy bells, vetch. To keep myself focused, I cultivated poison oak and nettles. <laughs> I... <laughs> I've, I've done my best to replicate the coastal climate, hot and relatively dry in summer, cool and wet in winter. Still, the plants struggle against the altitude. I've done all I can, installed a subterranean heat system and barrels for thermal mass storage, set the timers for the automatic vents. At the center of the greenhouse, on the square of flagstones, I remove my jacket, sit on the battered wooden chair that Grand Ella shipped to me that used to stand beneath the blue pearmain tree in her apple orchard. The air here is rich with decay. Mushrooms thread their hyphae through the soil, connect with the fine roots of the other plants. I would not be surprised to find quail sharing this space, a lynx stalking the quail. I would not blink if Grand Ella's voice echoed on the panes or if I heard my mother's laugh diminishing, lost somewhere in the green. I'm in a glass box. I could almost be home. For another hour, the rain strikes the panes, and then the clouds clear away. The cabin floats out there, a dark mass in moonlight. I watch the stars caught in the steamed-over panes, the leaves shifting through the constellations. The moon falls, and dawn comes up. The light slowly strengthens from yellow to white, cuts the peaks against the blue, floods down the valley. Then the sun strikes the greenhouse. On the glass, condensation gathers into drops, falls with a patter of artificial rain. Through the morning, I tend this captured forest, clip a branch, deadhead flowers, search for pests. Eventually, I put my work aside, lie flat on the flagstones, and watch the sky. I'm at the bottom of that thin, clear mountain blue. With my eyes closed, I can feel how contained I am. I almost hear the sounds I remember, the clack of a deer's hooves on Grand Ella's footbridge, 
the buzzing hummingbirds, my lost mother, the creeks flowing through the shallow gravity of Grand Anne's acres, Grand Ella's acres. I don't know if gravity is the same in this mountain valley as it was in the San Andreas Rift Valley of my home. What I do know is that this greenhouse seems to have its own separate gravity, less than the gravity that holds the planet together. That's it. glad to be back. Um, I'm leaving complete chaos back in Philadelphia, um, which is only part of why I'm glad to be back. But um, my daughter is getting married in 12 days in an apartment into which we moved six weeks ago. And it's just, as I was leaving, I I was saying to my husband, Richard, um, you know, don't forget to clear this, don't forget to pack these boxes, don't forget to call the caterer, don't forget to, you know, have the dog made presentable. (laughs) And there is this great, what I think of as a marital pause, (laughs) which, where he then said, and you'll be in your happy place. (laughs) So, indeed, I am in my happy place. Um, I'm not going to read from the novel. I read you all, some of you, the first chapter last year, and I'm just in that point of nervousness about it where it's dawned on me that it actually is going to be read by other people, so I don't want to look at it. So um, I'm going to read a few pages from a, a kind of odd thing that I've been working on in the interstices of life. Um, it's it's kind of new ground for me. It's based on a true family story, and it's it's being written in blocks, and it's the story of a great uncle of mine. Um, and I'm not going to read it in order, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. So uh, you'll you'll just sort of know from the numbers. I mean, it is in order, but I'm not reading all of it. So I'm just reading pieces of it. It's called Quicksilver, Texas, 1915. One. The floors are marble, black and white squares, though the black isn't true black. It's the green of the ocean when the sun is nearly gone, and it seems as though all the light of the day of the world has been pulled downward, downward, the way a rope is pulled hand over hand. Even so, it's not that black and white both men remember. That pattern neither can bear to see. I'm sorry. Even so, it's that black and white both men remember. That pattern neither can bear to see afterward. Not even in its most benign context. A game board. The tile wrapping a kitchen wall. Not until the younger of the two, the doctor, coming home in 1919, looks out at the Atlantic all around and understands, finally, about the black not being black, understands that there is something in this other color, this deep and deepening green, much more frightening than all those chessboards he avoided, those games of checkers his nephews entreated him to play. How much simpler... How much too simple it seems to him, then, the thought of black and white, how empty of complexity, 
how empty of a villain the nothingness of black. While the father, not the doctor's father, but the father of the boy, will never have that thought, nor will he ever realize, as the doctor did all along, that he could not bear the sight of a black and white checkerboard. He will only feel repulsed each time the pattern appears before his eyes, and he will look away. Two. The point about the doctor is that he's young himself, not as young as the boy, obviously, but young. That's why the father chooses him. That and some sense that he shouldn't take the boy to the doctor whom his mother and sisters see, not for this, if only to spare the boy that embarrassment, to spare them all. And anyway, he's certain that what's needed is a young medico, a man of science up on the latest, who will know what recent progress has been made, progress which the father does not fear. Progress, which has always seemed to him a lawyer, a man of other people's contracts and wills and the deeds of their homes, a person of safe deposit boxes and codicils, like a thing apart from his life, the great adventure of his age, for which he is spectator only. Other men moving forward, other men creating the future as though it were broadcloth and they the operators of the loom, other men no, he doesn't fear progress or fear youth at all, but he does fear being overheard, does fear the loose quality of any communication other than face-to-face. -face. So after telling the boy he would see to it, after telling him that it was a foolish business, but he was hardly the first to whom such a thing had happened, he picks up his hat and goes out for a stroll. Because it is exactly this for which his intelligence is best designed thinking through where the young doctor will be at a bit past five on a Wednesday and just what route he might take home to the rooms he rents. It is this understanding of habit, the rule and not the exception, at which the father excels. Just this, which is to him, though he would never say it, would never think in these terms, very close to a religion, this belief in the regularity of behavior, this faith that the doctor will do what the doctor always does, which is what any sensible man would do, and therefore can be known. Even as the father admires those who push the bounds of the universe wider, even as he envies those who weave the fabric of existence into new designs, who question that the future must be what the present is, what the past has been, even as he wishes he were such a man, he is still very much the man who knows at what hour a man will leave his office, what route he will take home. Five. The father stays in the room for the exam, though he looks away as the boy's penis appears, taking out his pocket watch, not because he needs to know the time or even because he doesn't know the time, he does, it's just past four, but because of an impulse unexamined to withdraw something out from his own clothing, out from himself. Maybe because he wishes he were the one needing care. Maybe because he senses there is some mystical force at work to which he isn't paying quite enough attention. A sound he cannot hear but almost hears that if he heard would explain to him that he should stop time right now. That time is about to matter more to him than it has before and that the one equals the other, the penis and the pocket watch, the examination, the sweep of the second hand. The values are exchanged or they are on a collision course, there is some responsibility he feels but does not feel as the boy has given over power, stands with his penis hanging out defenseless, and there is the watch in his father's hand, and maybe in the end it is only this, that they are both
both standing helpless in that room. Six. The doctor, who is not as open-minded as he tries to seem, but harbors certain feelings about young men who cat around and visit whores, who is, in fact, a somewhat priggish man, is revolted by the boy's penis with its telltale evidence, but envies him the father, casually checking his watch, uttering no disapproval, and wonders, even as he feels a superiority that seems inevitable to him, how not to feel superior to this boy, what his own life might have been without the storm of a father he had, the man who in a similar situation, almost impossible to imagine, would no doubt have simply cut him dead. There's no doubt about what this is, he says. The doctor makes no mistake. He isn't the sort of man to make a mistake. In a sense, he has never had the imagination to make a certain kind of mistake. He gives the boy the right number of pills. He administers them properly. He cannot swear they'll cure the boy, but there have been studies done, and there is a good chance. It's not the only treatment, but it's the best, and the boy is a healthy boy otherwise. He gives the boy the pills, four pills, and water in a porcelain mug that reminds the father of something, something from long ago, though he can't quite conjure memory of what. Quicksilver, the doctor says, much better than arsenic. They learn a lot about this kind of thing during a war. How long does this take, the boy asks. It takes almost no time. It takes no time at all because before he can leave that room, he is dead. He is 16 years old and he is the man's only son and the doctor has just held his penis looking at it with pity and he is on the floor and he is dead and he will always be dead. And there is nothing even to think, nothing either of the men can think. No possibility of thought or of speech. What is there to say? And no reason to leave this room ever. No life outside it important enough to go from here to there. Nothing that is large enough to hold the fact of this boy being dead except this room which is suddenly vast and the man's watch does not stop and the man's heart does not stop but he is an old man now while the doctor is becoming younger feels himself slip into being a child is on the floor is kneeling leaning over the boy making sure making sure but then is sure and falls back onto his backside his gangly legs before him like a little boy shooting marbles on this checkboard marble floor as though there were such an escape such a choice he would make if he could As sitting there, he can now feel how he hates being the doctor, how little he ever wanted this, how terrible it is to be him with this dead boy, how right he was to be angry, how the boy in his recklessness, his lustfulness has ruined them all, how it is not only too late to save the boy, but it is too late to save himself. Eight. Four of them in the room now. She could be a goddess, a fairy of old. She has no human role here, hers only to animate again. She is the spark that reignites and cannot reignite like a divining rod, the quick from the dead. And it is so practical, so essential a role for a girl only 19 years old herself whose new husband calls her silly names, teases her for how forgetful she is, wonders at her being able to keep any job, wonders that she does not swoon at the sight of blood, loves her for being as he sees her, such a silly little thing, but who is now this force, this deciding force, telling one man, you are alive just with a touch. You too, you are alive. 
And then the third who is not telling him that too with just a touch. You, you are now dead, you, a dead boy growing down into the marble of the floor, the white squares chiseled pools of you, the black like some night awaiting you. And she is to be messenger beyond this room as well. It is she who walks the three blocks through falling dusk, who turns a corner, knocks on a door. It is she who first peers into the home of the father and the mother and the sisters and sees how dark it is to become inside. And it is she, this silly girl, who is not that at all, or if she ever was, will never be again. The girl whose husband has called her goose and wondered at her easy way with truth, who says to the mother, I'm sorry, ma'am, who has come to this house because she sensed that time was running differently in that room with its checkerboard floor not running at all, and she has taken measure of the men responsible, understands that they are not truly there, and understands that she cannot restart the clock. I'm sorry, ma'am, there has been an accident. And it is she who will see the mother's face as it drains of all expression, and emptying she will describe that night when she is home, and then again in the morning to her husband, the blank of the mother's eyes, the flat of her lips, how she seemed almost to die herself, not when she heard the news, not when she learned her son was dead, but when she learned she was to learn, and still did not know." This older woman, maybe twice the nurse's age, whose face for just that moment so still looked suddenly so exactly like that of her son in his motionless, expressionless death. And in the telling that night, the next morning, in the attempt to describe all of that to this husband of hers, she will know that she was wrong not even a full year before to marry this man who looks at her with a kind of indulgence as she describes this face and then the other face, the mother, the son, will know she doesn't love him as she stops just short of telling him about the light wind, the one that followed her down those streets, the wind that seemed to rustle her alone and no one else, no leaves on the trees, no flags, but only her, the wind she felt would stop if she were to stop, but did not stop, and blew her there to that door, then gusted right through her, right through her breath as she spoke, so the mother's face could be touched by the air her son exhaled. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.